You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is uh, probably one of the folks who's been on the show the most, uh, him and a handful of other folks. Um, Jeet here, who uh, I guess best described is a Canadian comics critic slash academic. Um, his latest book is called In Love With Art, uh, Francoise Mouly's Adventure in in comics with Art Spiegelman, as well as other work uh, like the editing the Walton Skeezix collections uh, with Chris Ware. Uh, and I've also um, co-edited uh, a couple of books at the, from the University uh, Press of Mississippi uh, with Kent Worcester and Charles Hatfield, the most recent of which is um, The Superhero Reader. Oh, the su- I don't know about that one. Oh, yeah, it's, it's a collection of essays about... Um, uh, superhero comics and the um, uh, the aesthetics of them, history, and the sort of the political debates surrounding them. Interesting, because I, in presumptuously speaking, that that's not uh, a specific interest of yours. Superhero comics. Um. Well, it depends. Conversations. Uh, well, no. I mean, it depends on which ones you're talking about. I mean, I don't think it's like. Um, uh, I mean, I'm interested in comics in general. And, um, but I mean, w- within that, um, uh, there's, uh, you know, always judgment calls to be made. I think with the superheroes, um, I, I mean, I'm certainly interested in, like, sort of, like, and his career, and uh, uh, Charles Hatfield wrote a, a really nice book about Kirby, 
Um, and and things like Will Eisner. The superhero comics. Um, in the anthology, we're talking about the superhero um, as a cultural figure because I, I do think the superhero is one of the um, uh, it emerges out of both science fiction and comics, and it sort of like has had a huge kind of impact and is very culturally significant and speaks to all sorts of issues um, about um, uh, uh, identity, uh, sort of uh, nationalism and uh, gender and, and race. So I mean, I'm interested in superheroes um, more broadly uh, in a kind of academic or analytical way. Okay. Yeah. As well, uh, you were on with uh, Kent Worcester uh, to discuss um, the Comic Studies Reader. Which came yeah, th that was an earlier book that we did, um, which is more trying to like sort of define what is comic studies. And uh, yeah, so, so yeah, I mean, I think in general, I, I, I've like edited and written a lot on comics with a kind of maybe a broad view of like comics as a field rather than just like a spe you know specific cartoonist like trying to think of you know what is this thing called comics yeah and I guess that's what makes this book uh, kind of important to have you on for it's your first solo uh, book like this on a certain person um, yeah. that you're not like a part contributor with a lot of other folks or like one of your great introductions for like a crazy cat book. Um, this is yeah. like Jeet's book. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. This is the sort of first uh, uh, um, monograph, which is focused on a sort of particular individual, and then where I, I really wrote everything myself. Uh, although even there, I mean, I kind of feel like, um, I mean, with this book, uh, it has a collaborative element in the sense that like there's a lot of images, and the images are part of the story. And so I do feel like I, um, it's not out of keeping with say the Walton Skizik books, where I work with Chris Ware, and where you know he, he does the design, and we have all these like great photographs and stuff. And so like whenever I'm doing one of these um, book projects, I don't see that as a sort of solo or auteur work by me, but as something like kind of collaborative, um, because I don't draw myself. Yeah. So I like to <laughs> work with uh, people who like are there, like uh, cartoonist or or working with cartoonists and working with like sort of photographs and and images. Um, so 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 in that sense, yeah, it is a sort of solo book. But within the book, you'll see lots of drawings by uh, Charles Burns, uh, Art Spiegelman, Francois herself, and uh, and many other people, Suko. Um, so uh, yeah, yeah. Just, just to give people a sense of the book itself. But the book is telling the story of um, uh, one person, Francois Mouly, and um, and I guess that's sort of interesting because I had, um, um, I mean, I've been planning on and I'm going to be doing sort of like you know monographs on a bunch of different cartoonists, and I, um, for a variety of reasons, we ended up, I ended up doing Francois first, and I think like I'm actually really happy with that choice because. She's such an anomalous figure in the history of comics. Mm -hmm. Like I think, um, I mean, the other people I mean would be interested in writing about uh, Francois's husband, Art Spiegelman, say, or um, uh, Robert Crumb, or Chris Ware, or Seth. I mean, the thing with all those guys is that they've all kind of had the same life story, even though they're different people. And they're like, well they're, documented. Well, they're well documented, but they're also well. They they follow a certain trajectory. Like if you look at any cartoonist um, uh, uh, w within that tradition, it's like always the same story. You know, like like sort of like growing up in a lower middle class household. Um, you know, like starting to read like you know like Uncle Scrooge or Archie. Um, um, uh, um, uh, not being good enough to play on the baseball team, being a bit nerdy, not getting the girls. Starting to read superheroes, and then then moving on to like Crumb. Starting to listen to jazz and ragtime. I mean, it's all the same story, right? Yeah. <laughs> With variations, like like whereas like Francoise um, has not had that life. She's like someone who was like a born in France, b is a woman, uh, and c is like you know coming out of a very different sort of cultural you know milieu of you know being the um, daughter of a very distinguished plastic surgeon and also being a very um, artistic person who had trained as an architect and who was very adventurous who like you know this is someone who like when she was a teenager had um, uh, she and her boyfriend like got a van and with some friends they drove to Iran and Afghanistan right 
uh, that's not something that you see Chris Ware or Seth doing. <laughs> no. So, 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 so uh, well, all of which is a roundabout way of saying that I think I'm very happy to have done a book on uh, Francoise. Not to say that I don't want to do books and will, uh, I will pl- I'm plan on doing books on other people in the future. But I mean, the great thing about Francoise is that she's such an anomalous and, um, figure and someone so outside of the mainstream. So it's a way of telling the history of comics from like um, a totally unique perspective. From a perspective that's not not the normal, you know, nerdy white fanboy that perspective. Maybe to kind of give folks a context, because you talk about Francois being anomalous. Um, we all know who Chris Ware is. You mm-hmm. know, even you know non comics folks know who Chris Ware is. Art Spiegelman. You know, everyone knows who Art Spiegelman is. Vancouver. We just had the amazing uh, mm-hmm. comic show. Um, but Francois, why is she important? Um, Okay, yeah, no, that's a great question. And I think um, the, uh, uh, well, first of all, to just say who she is, perhaps I should have been the first thing we talk about. So Francois uh, Mouly um, uh, was the co-editor in the 1980s of a magazine called Raw, which she co-edited with her husband, Art Spiegelman. Uh, And Raw is kind of like a centrally important magazine in the history of comics. Um, It's the magazine that kind of took the tradition of underground comics and pushed it to a higher level. So it, you started to see art that's more ambitious, both um, uh, more uh, art, um, aesthetically challenging, uh, that tries to do more, and uh, in some cases um, has a, a stronger narrative content. So Raw is a kind of crucial magazine in creating this whole sort of world of um, alternative and underground comics. And in, within the pages of Raw, you saw the early works of many people who are still sort of major figures within the world of comics. Um, Raw was a place where Art Spiegelman um, serialized Mouse, which is, you know, like a hugely important graphic novel, uh, but it's also uh, published some of the earliest works of Charles Burns, Gary Panter, uh, Linda Berry, Chris Ware, Ben Catcher, and, and many other people, as well as a whole slew of European artists. Uh, so, so that's her first major claim to fame. She's the co-editor of Raw which ran from 1980 to 1991. Now, subsequently, in 1993, Francoise um, became the um, art editor of The New Yorker, and she instigated a radical change in the cover um, that appeared in The New Yorker. Prior to her, The New Yorker had gone through a period of many decades where it um, published covers that were very anemic or were very had the sort of uh, cried um, to be soft and gentle. The, the editor... Uh, who's um, had the strongest say in this was um, William Sean, who's the major editor of the New Yorker, and he said he wanted covers that don't call attention to themselves. And and he, so in the 1970s and 1980s, although they published some great covers by someone like Saul Steinberg, the average New Yorker cover, the typical New Yorker cover, would be a flower on a windowsill. It would be a sort of watercolor of a beach, an empty beach, you know, or the um, uh, a, a storefront. And it would have this sort of... Um, um, Melancholy. Be the sort of the mel- mel- melancholy, a little bit, but just like sort of just like everyday scenes. It's sort of like the stuff that you would see um, uh, your average Sunday painter who goes out and paints a watercolor yeah. doing, right? Like, like uh, you know, and you see the uh, so, but I mean, like, like Francois, who was hired by Tina Brown, who became the editor of The New Yorker in the early 90s, um, with the mission of sort of shaking up the magazine, Francois started um, The New Yorker on doing co- covers that were A, topical, uh, dealing with current events, uh, B, that like really tried to make readers, provoke readers, make readers think, um, um, and uh, C, like sort of brought in a sort of cartooning uh, or narrative aesthetic. So she brought to The New Yorker, um, during her t- uh, tenure, she's published many covers by people like Art Spiegelman, Adrian Tomeni, um, uh, Chris Ware, Ivan Bernetti. Uh, so so uh, there's that aspect, but also covers that like really speak to the topical issues of the time. Uh, most famously, uh, recently, uh, the um, uh, uh, cover dealing with gay marriage, which had Bert and Ernie, the Muppets, like watching TV, celebrating the triumph of gay marriage in the Supreme Courts. And that cover got like a huge amount of attention. It got like 625 million uh, impressions 
on the internet. Like it was so widely circulated through Facebook and through Twitter um, that the, uh, that it's become one of the most uh, seen images in like contemporary times. And so that that's a radical shift from you know to do Bird and Ernie and gay marriage is a radical shift from the William Shawn era of doing flower pots. So so the, 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 that's the, her second major claim to fame the work that she's done in The New Yorker and the sort of um, cartooning aesthetic that she's brought to The New Yorker. And the third thing that she's done since the late 1990s is um, uh, uh, taking a real interest in kids' comics, uh, editing anthologies with Arts Wiegelman, um, publishing sort of um, um, uh, kids' comics, uh, and then starting in 2004, uh, starting the uh, line of Toon Books, um, which... uh, 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 are sort of uh, aimed at children, are comic books um, uh, with a st- strong mission of like literacy and use like a lot of contemporary cartoonists like again Spiegelman but also Jeff Smith, uh, René French, uh, um, uh, um, Rutu uh, Modan, yeah many others yeah yeah. And the, the, one of the interesting things about the Toon books um, that I was showing this to some friends that have kids and their kid isn't really into reading that's why one of the interesting things is just how they work with um, reading comprehension. So at the back, they have like a list of like, okay, this person can read this well, this line is good. And then just as each, you know, the different books kind of work on building that comprehension or kind of with the different levels and skills. And uh, it's not often you actually see something specifically targeted towards ability. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, to explain that a little bit, I mean, the origins of the Toon Books really come out of the fact that um, um, Art uh, uh, Spiegelman and Francois Lully have two kids, uh, and their daughter, Nadja, was a very easy uh, reader, who took to reading very uh, uh, quickly, but their son, Dash, was a more reluctant reader, um, and they were very unhappy with the sort of... um, uh, primary readers that Dash was given, that they felt that these things were very boring books and would make reading very boring. And what they noticed was that Dash, even though he's a reluctant reader, would always read comics. Um, the Spiegelman Bully household, of course, has a lot of comics. And so and um, uh, so they, uh, uh, they encouraged that, and Dash became like a very active reader through the comics. And, and these are, like, to give a sense of it, I mean, like, basically, um, is the, the late 90s, early um, in the uh, 21st century, uh, so there weren't a lot of kids' comics publishing at that time. I mean, you know, like DC and Marvel at this point are really geared towards like 45-year-old men, and they're publishing stories about rape and cannibalism every month. And like, there's no way the same person would ever give any of those comics to a child, or or I, I think they shouldn't give them to anyone. But I mean, <laughs> it's, it's certainly not like an impressionable mind. Uh, I think uh, and. It's very uh, worth and, and, above and, you. And this is a period where the sort of publishing of things like Karl Barks and John Stanley's Little Lulu wasn't being done. It was in, in abeyance. And so, so Art um, uh, Spiegelman and Francois Mouly, to get their, encourage their son's reading, had to give him the co- kids' comics that they had, which were comics uh, that Spiegelman had from the 50s and 60s of the original publications of Karl Barks's Uncle Scrooge or Donald Duck or John Stanley's Little Lulu. So what Art likes to say is that he sacrificed his collection for the sake of his children. Uh, so, uh, and so, so the Toon books are really, I mean, I mean, I think this speaks to something about Francoise, that she's always going against the grain, that she has a sort of contrarian streak. So in 1980, when, uh, or even 1978, when she started Raw Books as a sort of publishing firm, like, you know, adult comics, comics that were mature and had an avant-garde sensibility, were like virtually unheard of. I mean, there was the stuff Art Spiegelman was doing, and there was stuff like Martin Von James's The Cage, but there wasn't a lot of it. And, and you know, like, the, this was, we're entering into the Jim Shooter era. Um, and so, so, so Francoise, to publish Raw and the other books that she did, was really going against the grain of the 1980s. Um, and then with The New Yorker, she went against this sort of grain of the Sean era and returned The New Yorker to the sensibility of the 1920s and 30s when it was a much more topical, lively magazine. Uh, and with the Toon Books, she's like started this up in the late 90s and early t- um, in the 21st century when, you know, comics had forgotten their roots as kids literature. And, you know, she really saw a need of like ha- putting books up for uh, comics for kids because no one else was doing that. Um, and so and, and they really had, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, aside from the Toon Books um, 
stuff. I mean, they really had a vital role in revitalizing this just because of their friendship with Jeff Smith. I don't think people uh, realize this or remember this, but when Bourne was first published, it was done as a kind of direct market comic book in the sort of Cerebus, the Aardvark mold. And so most of the people reading Bone, um, when it was first published, you know, as a black and white uh, monthly comic, um, would have been like uh, the, the direct market people, like people who are like adults reading it. And it, it's, it's something adults can read. But I mean, uh, the um, Art and Francoise both realized that Bone also has this great potential for kids. And they're the ones that kind of um, uh, connected Jeff Smith up with Scholastic and encouraged him to do a color version of Bone. Uh, which then has gone on to become this, you know, like huge bestseller, selling in the millions of copies. And if you go to like, you know, I mean, not just comics hustle, like people, like you know, ordinary um, uh, families that you know we know, like everyone has a copy of Bone, right? Like the color version of Bone, which kids read. So, um, um, so they were kind of crucial, both Francoise and Art, in the sort of revitalization of kids comics uh, that started about a decade ago. Um, so, 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 I mean, again, to sum up, like, both Art and Francoise, like, there's three separate revolutions that they've been involved in. Um, the move to more adult and serious comics uh, in the 70s and 80s. Um, the move towards bringing a graphic novel sensibility towards the um, uh, publishing world, um, which includes both the New Yorker magazine, uh, but also in things like Pantheon. Um, the whole Pantheon line of graphic novels is basically um, uh, built on what Art and Francoise did in the 80s. It's built on Mouse, it's built on Chris Ware, it's built on Ben Catcher. And, um, uh, uh, and the third revolution is this sort of you know, revitalization or, um, uh, re- uh, of kids' comics uh, that started a decade ago, which is now becoming a kind of vital part of comics. So, so, so in telling the story of Francoise, I'm sort of telling the story of comics over the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Uh, and yeah, she's, she and Art have played a kind of crucial role uh, uh, in constantly changing comics and pushing them forward. One of the interesting things um, about when they started Raw is I didn't realize just how young Francoise was. And we kind of talk nowadays about like a lot of like impressive young cartoonists. And Francoise was, you know, twenty five in nineteen eighty when the first issue, oh yeah, yeah, got published. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but even before nineteen eighty, I mean, she started Raw Books and Graphics in nineteen seventy eight. Yeah, and before even the first issue of Raw was coming out, she was publishing sort of you know what we sort of now consider mini comics or uh, but, but but featuring people like Hugh Swartz, Art Spiegelman, Bill Griffith, Mark Bear. Uh, and and those are very impressive things that she did, like because she owned her own printing press, and they had a kind of uh, so so she did that when she was uh, uh, that would have been twenty three uh, years old um, to start up like her publishing firm. So yeah, that's a very I mean she was very young. Um, uh, I I mean I, so I, I think that's true. I mean I think that one thing that perhaps helped her was that you know she. Uh, uh, had this relationship with Art Spiegelman. Uh, they had met in, um, uh, I believe, 1975. And Art Spiegelman had already been, like, you know, involved in comics for a while and had been thinking about them his whole life. So she had a kind of a good uh, person to guide her. But, I mean, I think it also shows... But, I mean, it's it's a two-way kind of street mm-hmm. because, um, on the one hand, you know, like, Art introduced her to the history of comics, but then she took it to the next level of thinking in terms of, um, uh, you know, printing your own books, of uh, making the element of print and design crucial to comics, and also the very fact that she was able to, uh, like, appreciate what art was doing and his thinking and to internalize his aesthetic was kind of a crucial thing um, because there were other people who were, like, you know, art knew a lot of other people uh, who talked to him, who collaborated with him, but they didn't take to his... They didn't understand what he was doing in the way that Francoise did. Like, she, I think, was the one person that really understood, like, what Spiegelman's aesthetic agenda was, what he was doing in his early comics work, uh, what he and Bill Griffith did with Arcade Magazine, mm-hmm. and what he did in his book Breakdowns. And so, so she was able to see, like, what Spiegelman was doing there and to see within that, like, a potential for comics, to, to see that the comics, um, that the type of thing that Spiegelman was doing could have like um, other people could do and you could 
like have um, a, a wider community of comics, and that this could be a re- really something uh, that could grow. So her, so so you what 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 you kind of had is this um, uh, perfect um, union between two people of like Art Spiegelman, who had the sort of history of comics and this very strong aesthetic, and was a very talented artist, um, uh, combined with someone who like was able to see the broader implications. Was able to see that the the what Spiegelman was doing um, is something that you know like has great validity and not just great validity. It's like it's a great art form and it should and it has potential. And that what it, you need to um, to get it to spread is to bring in other artists to start publishing other artists and to to bring a magazine that brings in all the artists that are in this um, uh, doing similar work. And if you do that. Um, you can really change people's perception and, and both create a community of comics and create an audience for comics um, that can um, uh, 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 simulate this work. And and then she was right. I mean, like, it's kind of like, you know, the sort of key insights that she had in her early 20s w- turned out all to be accurate. One of the things that you can kind of really see the impact is when you compare, like, you see this jump from... Uh, the Spiegelman edited short order comics in Arcade Magazine, and then the jump from that to Raw. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's they're two different worlds, and like I kind of, in some ways, don't see them linked because they're just like Raw is just such this extra step, which brings in is like all these different communities, um, yeah, and really work that folks hadn't been seeing before in such a yeah. widespread. Well, 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 let's just, like, yeah, I think that's worth unpacking a little bit. I mean, I actually would kind of disagree with that. I do think that short-order comics and arcade are a kind of necessary step towards Raw, but there is a there is a kind of leap as well, right? But, I mean, I think what happened... Okay, so first of all, you have... The first thing to just tell the story is you kind of had underground comics, right? You had, like, you know, Crumb doing Zap and the excitement of that, and you had all these other people that came into it, like Spain Rodriguez, S. Clay Wilson, Kim Deitch, and this explosion of underground comics. Um, and then Spiegelman was a kind of like just a little bit younger. Like he was a younger, he would be the younger brother the, the, of, uh, of, say, Crumb or Kim Deitch. He was like, you know, about um, seven or eight years younger than those guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when he came to underground comics, he was kind of like finding his way and finding his niche. And he, Spiegelman quickly hooked up with Bill Griffith, who was also a, a, a sort of uh, uh, a younger kid within the underground family. And their key insight was that you know underground comics could use editing. That they that, that uh, because I mean something like Zap. On one hand, it is edited because it has a kind of it has the Zap artist. Like there's only um, six or seven artists as Zap at any one time. And to join Zap, you have to be voted in. And not only you have to be voted in, but they have a blackball system. So I think Kim Deitch, like you know, five out of the seven Zap artists wanted to learn in Kim Deitch, but two of those guys were idiots and didn't. Who's as great an artist as anyone on Zap uh, was never let into Zap, right? Like. Uh, so, 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 Zap was kind of edited, but within the seven guys that are always on Zap, and it, and it was Zap. a bro, it was like, it's very masculine. Yeah, it was very so. masculine, it is guys, and it is also that the, these guys, um, w- w- when they're doing Zap, they're, I mean, um, uh, the, the, what, the philosophy, which I quote in the book is, you know, you just get the seven best guys and they can do whatever the F they want, right? Like, you know, and that's the thinking behind Zap. And so what Spiegel and Griffith thought was, and their insight was, you know, like, well, you know, like, you know, these underground comics are great. But there's a li- there's limits to this. They're all just you know like stories about you know sex and drugs, and they're geared towards a hippie audience. And you know like if you want to push comics to a higher level, we have to like you know like um, ha- have some more thought into this. And they themselves were doing comics that are very satirical or um, el- elliptical or avant-garde or had a kind of you know like uh, I mean Bill Griffith, like you know the Zippy the we think of him as Zippy the Pinhead, but a lot of those comics are very like kind of you know they they have a very sharp satirical point of view um anyway, anyway so 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 what art Spiegelman and bill griffith their step was like let's do underground comics but let's edit them uh and so they did um starting with short order and then most famously with arcade in 75 and 76 and arcade was really different than the earlier underground comics although it had many of the same people i mean we have crumb 
who almost always did the covers. It had uh, Kim Deitch and Spain Rodriguez. But the thing with Arcade was they pushed the artist to do um, better and different work. And then, and so and so like you know like within the pages of Arcade, you see um, Crumb starting to do his kind of like nonfiction mode with you know let's. Um, talk about this here modern America or this great strip called That's Life which is about sort of early blues musicians mm-hmm. um, and you saw Spain Rodriguez like moving away from his sort of you know uh, pulp influenced uh, sci-fi stories or his motorcycle gang stories and starting to do stories about history including the great strip uh, Stalin which is like um, a very powerful telling of the life story of, of Joseph Stalin um, so they were pushing the underground guys and girls, and this is a big difference with Zap. They they made an active effort to bring in people like M. K. Brown and Diane uh, Noonan, uh, and so so they were pushing, um, uh, and and so so that's the big thing of like encouraging people to do better work, but then also just stylistically, like you know, like uh, Arcade was printed on better paper. Um, it had a table of contents. So like if you go through Zap, like you kind of just have to flip through it and see what's in there. There's no table of contents telling you who's in the issue, who draws what, uh, and, and so so so. And they would have like little editorials, and then they would also have a feature at the back where they reprinted old comics, uh, like Bill Gross or George McManus, to give people a sense of the history of comics. So if you look at Arcade, it's a real magazine. It looks like you know National Lampoon or or Mad. You know it could fit it within that mode of being a genuine magazine. And so that was a huge shift. And as I, as I sort of tell in the book, um, you know, in even doing that, those guys got into trouble. Because a lot of the underground cartoonists, like, resented this. Like, they were saying, like, you know, who are you, like, you know, like, Art Spiegelman and Bill Griffith to tell us what we should be doing? And who are you to make these, you know, because the underground comics had this aesthetic of, you know, like, people, just self-expression. People should do what the hell they want. Just publish what else, what's out there. So in trying to push underground comics um, to a higher level, like Spiegelman and Griffith, you know, they, 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 you know, they would get into fights, right? <laughs> like, 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 literally, like, I, I tell a story in the book about how, you know, um, uh, uh, S. Clay Wilson, uh, you know, like, sort of drunkenly barged into a party that Spiegelman went into and Spiegel and made a anti-Jewish remark, and then Spiegelman had to, you know, like, literally kick him out of there. Um, and and so, 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 so there's a lot of tension within the underground community. Uh, and the final thing to say about Arcade is it's very much is coming out of that community. Mm. Everyone who's in Arcade is really coming out of that San Francisco comics world. I think the one exception might be Mark Baer, who was out in Pennsylvania. But like and Michael, everyone, McMillan, huh? Michael McMillan? Yeah, well, where was McMillan? Was he mm. in New York? Yeah, maybe, maybe. There's a few, yeah, there maybe Jay Lynch who might have been in New York. But I mean, like, really, uh, like, like yeah. virtually everyone. It's yeah, very post-underground. Yeah, it's very, yeah, and it's very much within that underground milieu and then this is a point where underground comics you know as Art Spiegelman says like if you if you want to make cards you go to Detroit if you want to make underground comics you go to San Francisco and and within San Francisco these guys are all local celebrities like the the local newspaper would be reporting uh, on you know what Crumb is doing and you could go into like convenience stores in like 1975 and like pick up a copy of Zap in San Francisco right so so it's very much uh, or pick up a copy of Arcade in San, in San Francisco in, like, a local grocery store, right? So, so so in San Francisco, these guys are, like, big, and it's very much a San Francisco scene, and Arcade is a San Francisco magazine. Um, and what happens, I mean, what happens is that, like, Spiegelman, you know, gets burned out from doing Arcade, gets burned out by the fact that everybody hates him, you know, for trying to push comics to a higher level. Uh, he goes back to New York, where he has both employment uh, and family. Uh, he meets Francoise, um, and, we, and, we, and it's that shift from San Francisco to New York and the meeting of Francoise that sets the sort of uh, opportunity for Arcade. And, and you know, like after, uh, uh, for Raw. So after Arcade, Spiegelman was burnt out. He did not want to ever work on another magazine again. Um, he and Francoise meet up. Francoise is very interested in comics, is very excited by all the stuff that Spiegelman has shown her, wants to publish this stuff. And so she's, I mean, I think her, one of the big crucial things is that she pushes for both creating a publishing firm, Raw Books and Graphics, and for creating Raw Magazine. And as you say, there is a leap from Arcade to Raw. And I think the leap comes about for a bunch of different reasons. It's, it's, it's partially uh, that Spiegelman and Mully are like, you know, they're developing their aesthetic, 
they are they may they make a trip to France or to Europe in the late um, uh, I think it's either 77 or 78 and they're very excited by all the stuff they see in Europe so we're going to especially to Holland which is a very international city they were able to see like all these great comics done by people like Jacques Tardy, Hugh uh, Swartz, um, uh, a whole um, um, Marisol, the whole slew of people, mm-hmm. and so that's one leap. That the um, from arcade to raw, you had the introduction of European culture. Our, our raw is a very international magazine, and like you know, from the start, published a lot of these European artists in translation. And even by the mid '80s, was publishing manga in translation, which is very new. Like I don't think um, that was well ahead of anybody else being even aware of manga, um, except for Frank Miller, who was kind of you know, copying. Yeah, there was there's there's some little things like uh, I think heavy metal had some stuff here and there. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's but a the, few the things, but 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 certainly not the sort of like um, adult sophisticated. I mean, the the stuff. I mean, the people who are interested in manga in the late seventies and early eighties is is like the sort of Frank Miller. Oh, ninjas, cool. You know, yeah. I can do a comic book with ninjas in it. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite the. Uh, uh, any sort of awareness of, of this as an aesthetic. The, the one exception might be, um, which Spiegelman also uh, was interested in, was uh, Jen, um, uh, the, the Hiroshima book. Um, Barefoot Jen. Yeah, Barefoot Jen, uh, which was uh, translated very early, early on. But, but yeah, yeah, awareness of manga and of European comics was very limited. And so Art and Francoise, because you know, Francoise is very European, uh, but also, Art became interested in Europe through Francois. They, they became interested in European comics and then later uh, 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 international comics in general, and they, br- they brought that into Raw. So th- that's one shift. Um, the other shift is in the sort of the interest in design and in the publication uh, and in, in the sort of printing thing, because Francoise became very interested in printing and she bought her own. Uh, printing press, um, uh, Multilith in 78, and they took it up through, the, uh, they live on a loft in Soho on the fourth floor, which has no elevator. And so it's always a, uh, an amazing story how they got that printing press up to the fourth floor, which is that they went to their neighbor, the neighboring building, and they knew the neighbors. The neighboring building had an elevator. They took the um, elevator up to the fourth floor of the neighboring building. Then they had a ramp between the two buildings. <laughs> 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 they push the printing press through the ramp, right? So, so, so Francoise and Art are in their loft in Soho with a printing press, and Francoise is very interested in printing and design. Um, and, and it's partially growing out of this sort of, you know, post-hippie culture with things like Coach House Books as well in Canada uh, and Porcupine's Quill, but there's a kind of interest in, like, you know, book, bookmaking. Um, uh, there's also an American artist, Dieter Roth, and Yoko Ono, herself was sort of involved in sort of bookmaking. So, so Francoise was very interested in bookmaking and printing, and so she wanted to make each issue of Raw a beautiful physical object. Uh, and so each issue would have, you know, different things. They would have like a sort of like, um, the first issue had like a kind of um, inset of like Spiegelman's Two-Fisted Painter story, uh, as well as sort of um, uh, something that was sort of taped onto the, the, the cover, not taped on, but sort of... Um, uh, a color image that was pasted onto the, the cover. The second issue of Raw had a Mark Bear story done in bubblegum form. And it's something Francoise printed out. She printed out the bubblegum cards. They, you know, collated them. Uh, but not making sure, as with real bubblegum cards, it's not the same set in each issue. Uh, so you would have to buy multiple issues of Raw to get the story. <laughs> uh, and put in a little plastic bag. And because Art Spiegelman was doing work for Topps Bubblegum Company, they had access to bubblegum. So the each issue of Raw, I think number two, has like Mark Beer bubblegum cards with bubblegum. Uh, you know, like, uh, I, I actually have one of those issues. I still, I, I've I have, got a like, copy. I'm not going to open that gum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. so, so, so you have that. Uh, and so, 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 so with all her books, and, and uh, growing out of Raw magazine, she would do these books, publishing books by uh, Gary Panter, Jerry Moriarty, uh, Sue Cole, um, Charles Burns. Uh, in the 80s, and each of those books themselves are, you know, great physical objects. Like the one of the Gary Panther books has a kind of like cardboard cover uh, to go along with the kind of like you know post-apocalyptic feel of the Jimbo story. So, 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 so sh- I, I think that's a major revolution 
that Francoise brought to comics, which is that she realized that comics are a physical form. They exist um, um, as objects. And so therefore, the physical object has to be as, um, as uh, the same level of intelligence and craft as the comics themselves. And this was a real revolution, like because prior to that, um, the, in the history of comics, comics were always a kind of throwaway form even though people are doing great work, right? Like, you know, Winsor McKay was doing, like, amazing work, you know, worked with these um, uh, printers who did, like, amazing gradations of color, but it's in, like, a newspaper, uh, newsprint format, which people threw away, right? Like, so I was compared, like, it's like Michelangelo working on sculptures in ice, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, 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 and later on, you have, like, you know, like, you know, Jack Kirby or many other people in comics, Karl Barks, John Stanley, doing, like, great comics, but in throwaway monthly comic books, they were printed on newsprint, um, and then within that format, they did amazing things. But the 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 physical form of comics was always a kind of afterthought. Um, there are a few kind of exceptions. I mean, Charles Schultz um, and earlier Crockett Johnson had worked on the design of some of their books. Uh, Walt Kelly, and then within like small press printing, like Kochow's books did the cage by martin von james in 75 and, and projector so, before that too which, huh? and the projector which and the projector before that and also the bp nickel books and so so there were a few people that had thought about design and comics before them but like not in a way that ever made any impression but like francois was a person that most systematically thought about this thought about it in the most radical terms and then did and did it in both raw uh, magazine and raw books in a way that really changed uh, people's perception. So growing out of that, what you get is things like Drawn and Quarterly, right? Which is like, you know, like every one of their books is like, uh, they try to design it beautifully. You get Chris Ware, right? Like with, um, especially with building stories, the whole sort of, um, back in the 1970s, um, Art Spiegelman and Francois Mouly had thought about doing something like building stories, of having a comic book that's actually like a box, and within the box you have um, a bunch of different books in different formats to mirror the history of comics, right? You would have like a newsprint, uh, Windsor McKay type thing, you'd have a comic book, you'd have a, a, a mini comic, or, uh, but, but, but I mean, they didn't get around to doing that. But I mean, our, Chris Ware's whole aesthetic, his whole uh, approach to design is growing out of like raw um, and, and what Francois was thinking about. So, so if you think that there's a big difference between arcade and raw, um, I think that there is a big difference. And the, the, there's a difference as we mentioned before it's much more cosmopolitan. It's open to European and Japanese artists, mm -hmm. uh, but it's also much more designed. Uh, and, and the level of thought in the design is much greater than, uh, even though Arcade was much good looking for an underground comics, it was not uh, anywhere near the same level as Raw. Um, uh, and also, I mean, the, the final element is that you know Raw took the editing of comics to a higher level. Like there's a huge amount of thought that they put into each issue in terms of who's in the issue, but then also the sequence of the story and how the stories fit together. So the issues of Raw often have a kind of like a thematic feel. Or the, um, I mean, the best example is the first issue, where um, which is um, subtitled the uh, magazine of postponed suicides, um, and which you know, like many of the stories in there have a kind of suicidal theme. Um, but uh, so so that level of editing, um, you know had not existed in comics before. Uh, Arcade and was one precursor, and Harvey Kurtzman with MAD and with his other uh, projects like Trump was a kind of precursor, but like there's nothing of the intensity that they did. I mean, prior to Francoise, what did editing in comics consist of? It consisted of, you know, Mort Weisinger saying, like, let's have Superman fight a gorilla this month. Yeah. Uh, or it had, like, Stanley saying, oh, I think I'm going to take credit for the ideas of Jack Kirby and uh, Steve Ditko. That's editing, right? <laughs> 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 you know, whereas Francois and Art uh, were like, you know, like editing at a higher level of like thinking about um, the magazine uh, as an organic whole, um, as as a statement, uh, as having a gestalt, and then pushing everyone within that magazine to do their best work. So in in my book, Charles Byrne, I quote Charles Burns at some length about this. But, I mean, he talks about how, you know, he would have, like, these long, you know, coffee, um, uh, coffees with Art and Francoise, and they'd be, like, you know, like, locating, like, sort of, you know, elements in his stories that aren't working and stuff that is working and, you know, pushing him to thinking more about narrative 
and thinking at a higher level. And and so I think that that's the, I mean that's what um, Art and Francoise really brought to comics. This is kind of like you know um, uh, this element of mind because I think that prior to that, I mean a lot of the great cartoonists they couldn't think ahead because they were working on deadline, right? Like they were always like you know you you, you would get into a format of working on the Fantastic Four or working on Peanuts, and then you'd keep doing it year after year. Uh, and the um, what Art and Francois like really uh, and the underground comics themselves they didn't have a lot of room for intelligence they had a lot of room for you know visually striking powerful comics but like the idea of like stepping back and thinking like what am I doing here what story is essential what do I want to tell that's not in a lot of those uh, cartoonists right like they're they're, 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 they're much more instinctual um, and so Art and Francois you know, brought this like you know um, um, emphasis on like you know like let's try to think about what we're doing, and 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 they met a lot of resistance. I mean, that's part of the story I told as well. Like you know, you know, like Spielman, as I said with Arcade, like you know he had to he got into fights with the the underground people, and within the eighties there were people, you know, who um, uh, I think one could associate with say Weirdo Magazine, who said like. Oh, raw! That's just pretentious art stuff, you know. Like that's just you know people trying to get that Soho crowd and get into galleries, and it's not real comics. Real comics is doing jokes about farts and turds, and uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, 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 so there was always a kind of um, uh, uh, so, so, so. There, I mean, this is not something that was an easy victory, and it really went against the grain of comics. But I do think, like you know, like raw is the most important magazine of the 80s and in in the sense that like if you say you know like mad was the essential magazine of the 50s um uh zap was the essential comic of the 70s arcade was the essential comics of the uh, uh of the uh, 70s raw is the essential comics of the 80s it's the comic that really like pushed comics to a higher level Touching on just something you said a second ago about the Soho art crowd, um, one of the things that Rod did do was create this kind of interesting um, bringing together cultures where you'll see folks like uh, Jerry Moriarty or, mm-hmm. say, like a Pascal Dore, um, which is very untraditional comics yeah. at that point. I mean, nowadays we can see just a whole wide spectrum of anything. You go to any show, TCAF, yeah. Brooklyn show. Um, but at that point, like introducing a Jerry Moriarty into a comics thing, w- was definitely kind of using a different lens and yeah. kind of applying a new standard to comics. Yeah, yeah, I know. I think that's I think that's right, and I think that the, um, I mean, I think one way to look at it is a lot of the people who had been in the underground comics had actually come from a fine arts background, but they rejected that. <laughs> like someone like Spain Rodriguez, you know, who we think of as a kind of plebeian you know, every man. But he went to art school. You know, S. Clay Winslow went to art school. But they rejected the sort of, you know, abstract expressionism and the dominant mode of art school and did comics. And for them, you know, like, uh, fine arts is something always to be rejected. Uh, whereas, like, art and Francoise were always much more open to that. I mean, art um, initially had some of that, but, you know, um, uh, but, you know, thanks to some um, uh, friends, was able to overcome that and became very interested in things like Picasso and modern art and Francoise as well I mean she I mean it's one of the things I emphasize in the book like she has um, you know uh, training in architecture and was always interested in avant-garde culture of many forms um, they, one of the things that brought them together was that they were both interested in um, the um, uh, experimental film scene in New York uh, and Francoise you know living in her loft had a uh, roommate who was a painter. Uh, she was very interested in the gallery scene, uh, and she was very interested in avant-garde literature. Uh, you know the French tradition um, uh, of, of the new novel. Uh, so, w- in that sense, I mean they were both much more receptive to contemporary culture of all forms than um, a lot of their under- the, a lot of the underground people, and that's what made them able to see someone like Jerry Moriarty and see that he belongs into comics and to bring him into the fold of comics. Um, and in, in that sense, Ra is a precursor, I would say, to the whole, yeah, the wedding of art, of comics with fine art that we see in things like Kramer's Ergot, uh, you know, Fort Thunder, you know, th- there's a whole tradition that grows out of that. 
but they're definitely the ones that that, that, that saw that. Um, uh, and I, I think one of the interesting things also is that they saw. I mean, Gary Panter is another excellent example. I mean, he's someone who's at as much at home, um, you know, doing a mini comic as you know, doing a work that could you could put in a gallery or on a museum wall, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, 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 um, and one of the interesting things is, though, that it's not the traditional, like, Roy Lichtenstein, you know, let's get a painter to make fun of comics. It's like, it's like people who are coming out of painting, but also understand the language of comics and appreciate it. And so someone like Jerry Moriarty, I mean, he's a great scholar of Ernie Bushmiller and Nancy, right? And, and has a much deeper, inv- and he's, Jerry Moriarty is the guy who I think we, we discovered Fletcher Hanks yep. um, in, a, in a lot of ways. So I think that you have, um, what they were able to discover was this community of people that were n- not quite um, the traditional comics people, but had something that comics needed. Um, and, and I think that's a real a big shift. Um, and as I said, I think Francoise is a kind of emblematic figure just because she really came um, uh, out of a different background as I mentioned before, coming out of France, coming out of being a woman, coming out of art school, that really stands in contrast to the mainstream comics world of the 1970s and 80s especially, where you had a lot of people that were totally into comics culture, who totally grew up and knew nothing else, right? Or, or, or if they knew anything else, they saw it in terms of comics culture. All those people in the 70s um, uh, who were starting to work for Marvel and DC John Byrne, Frank Miller, or even the um, mid-level people who were doing their own comics but informed by the mainstream aesthetic, like, you know, Wendy Penai, Dave Sim, they're totally, their horizon is comics. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of limit of their view. Like, someone like Dave Sim, you know, he's never gone outside the world of comics. I mean, he's literally, like, like you know, he dropped out of high school, he went to work for, like, a comic book store, he was inter- went to, like, comics convention, was interviewing people, and, you know, like, and started doing Cerebus, which is totally geared towards the direct market, which often, fe- you know, started off as a parody of Barry Windsor Smith uh, Conan, and then later would do parodies of the X-Men or whatever, mm-hmm. but, and of Neil Gaiman. But so if you, I mean, I mean, not to... I don't want to put down Dave Sim too much, but, you know, because like, I mean, he, he's a smart guy. He's also gone on to read, like, you know, Gore Vidal or whatever. In some ways, it's perhaps the... But, but I think the, the key to understanding Dave Sim, though, is that he's, like, totally a product of the direct market and of, that, of, the, of the comics c- culture and everything that he sees. So even when he reads the Bible, he's reading it out of a framework that's sort of been trained in like Jack Kirby, right? And yeah. the, like, and and so 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 so, and and then a lot of the, a lot of the misogyny of the work is a byproduct of comics culture, right? Like it's just kind of like boys club. Yep. Uh, uh, so, what Francoise and Art did, uh, and especially Francoise, because the book is about her, is they brought into co- you know the world of comics, you know the outside world, the world of uh, you know like 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 broader art, like not just like painters. But you know, like filmmakers, essays, and and I think that's a crucial thing because otherwise you get like you know this totally inbred, you know, re- uh, demented, uh, 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 childish art, uh, like you know that 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 characterizes, uh, uh, you know, like ninety percent or more of what's coming out of the direct market. Now, is that, is that too severe? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll I'll leave that for the uh, for the listeners. <laughs> <laughs> um, we're running lowish on time. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And one of the things I want to talk about, uh, in particular with Francoise, is Francoise the artist. Yes. Um, which doesn't get talked about a lot, but you talk about it in the book, and mm-hmm. uh, one of the things you reveal is the origin of the famous New Yorker 9/11 cover and the role yeah. she played in that. And on the cover of the book, you use her um, one comic strip that she had in the first issue of Raw. Um, it kind of well, and I, I think that comic book, for, comic strip from 1980, is very pertinent because a lot of it deals with the sort of anxiety she had when she went into all this, where she wasn't sure. I mean, I think in the comic strip, she asked, you know, like, uh, uh, "Am I really an artist, or I don't think of myself as an artist?" And and that's the concern that she had. She didn't didn't think of herself as an artist. And she, in some ways, she went into printing and publishing and editing as because 
um, she wasn't sure she had it in her to be an artist. And there's two things I try to show in the book. Is one is she is an artist. That that comics that she did from Raw is great. It's as interesting as anything else in the magazine, uh, and it's very revealing. Um, and secondly, uh, and and also that the yeah the 9/11 cover is a great example where you know it really came out of um, this you know horrible period after 9/11 where Arden Francois, you know, had to rescue their daughter and then come up with a cover and they were going back and forth. And, and the revelation in the book is Francois drew that 9-11 cover, even though it's credited with Art Spiegelman, because he came up with part of the idea. So, so, so it's a collaboration. I think, I think what Francois would say is that, you know, the, the cover uh, is, is um, by her and Art. Uh, so, so there's that. But I mean, uh, but the larger argument of the book is that what she does is an artist. Because if you're doing graphic design and at the level that she's doing it, if you're designing books with that sort of creativity and cleverness, if you're editing at the level that she's doing of really pushing an art forward uh, and of editing the New Yorker covers the way she does with such care and you know, like really like elevating them, then you know, she is an artist. Like she, her, her art form is not. Her medium is not painting. Her medium is not like uh, drawing. Her medium is not film. Her medium is editing and publishing. But mm. that is the art form that she works in. So, so, so I think that's the, that's the uh, implicit argument of the book that like what we're dealing with here is someone who is an artist, even though it took her. And then the drama of the book is that she herself for a long time would not have thought of herself as an artist, wouldn't call herself a, an artist. But I think that's sort of starting to change. Um, and I think my book might play a small role in this of um, getting both Francoise herself and other people to think about her as an artist. If you got, um, I'm presuming you had a lot of really lengthy conversations with Francoise to kind of glean the information um, yeah. for this book. And, and then from my own conversations with her, I can imagine they're quite amazing answers and it's kind mm -hmm. of the challenge you'd have as a writer kind of bringing together all these ideas and really succinctly bringing it down. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah, the book, I mean, in the book, uh, just to give people an idea, I mean, I, it's based on interviews. So it's based on interviews with Art and with Francois. And um, almost, lar uh, 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 Francois is the person I most talk to, but then also a lot of artists who worked with them, like Sue Cole, uh, Chris Ware, uh, Charles Burns. Gary Cantor, um, but the book was a real process, uh, and I, I mean, I wrote it on the one hand very quickly. Um, uh, we started in like January of this year, so uh, <laughs> you can That's do the a math. Pretty quick turnaround. Yeah, uh, but I think that the 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 book really grew out of conversations, and I think in a lot of ways, whatever merit the book has comes from the fact that I was able to listen to Francoise and like really pay attention to what she's saying. Because I mean, I had a broad sense of the outlines of the story. But then I would often find myself revising things or changing things. And it was like only in talking to her that I understood the story of the 9-11 cover for the first time. Even though it's been told in different forms, like I had to actually like listen to what she's saying. And I think in some ways, like if, you know, not to toot my own horn, but whatever merit the book has comes from the fact that I listen to people. I listen, and, and especially I listen to Francoise, but then also the other people. And by listening to them, I was able to... Uh, put together this story. So, in, in a sense, it's, it is a kind of oral history. On that note, Jeet, thank you for putting this together and taking the time to chat with me today. Uh -huh. uh, reminder, folks, I've been talking to Jeet here. His new book is In Love with Art, Francoise Mouly's Adventures in Comics with Art Spiegelman. As well, you mentioned the superhero criticism book with Mrs. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. The, the superhero reader with um, Charles Hatfield and Kent Worcester. Um, uh, those are the, my two um, uh, uh, big things uh, for, for the year, yeah. What about uh, another Walton Skizik's book? We're working on that right now. It'll be out in the spring. Uh, Chris Ware and Chris Oliveris and I are working on, on that as we speak. Uh, and uh, yeah, there'll be like uh, future books with like uh, Orphan Annie and <laughs> many other uh, uh, of, uh, of the sort of projects I work on. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. Excellent. I look forward to reading all of them. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jeet. Thank you, Robin. It's great to, uh, to have chatted with you.
Je repars à zéro. 